Again, my name is Greg Petrie. I'm the district representative for the Inland Northwest District in Washington and Idaho, Western Montana, and Alaska. And I've got a map of that coming up. And we are with Village Missions. Village Missions exists to glorify Jesus Christ by developing spiritually vital or spiritually healthy churches in rural areas of North America. And most of that pur purpose statement isn't very unique. Hopefully all of us, if we have a purpose statement, it would be to glorify Jesus Christ. Hopefully all of us want to develop spiritually healthy churches wherever we're at, but probably the unique part of that is rural North America, the United States and Canada. And, and that's been the focus of our ministry since uh, 1948. Our, our founder uh, was in Western Oregon and he saw all these little logging communities and farming towns and fishing villages, and many of them didn't have a pastor. And oftentimes the closest full-time pastor was maybe the next town or a larger town that was uh, 30 or 40 miles away and, and saw a need to have full-time spiritual leadership there. And so that's our focus. This is a map of where we're at, about 230 churches in the United States and Canada. And this just shows to the United States. And, and the different colors are, are the regions, the different districts that we have, that we have somebody that's a, a district representative. And central to our role is to be available to encourage the pastors. Again, they're often in a small rural area and might not have anybody to, to fellowship with. They, they may have struggles. And so, so those of us that have, have been through the battles, that have, have been through ministry, are there to be able to, to be there for them. Uh, Mark's the, the little blue area in western, southwestern Oregon and the northwest corner of California. Um, smaller area geographically, but about the same. We, we all have right currently about 25, 26 churches that we're overseeing. And, and this is our district in the Northwest. Again, west, uh, western or eastern Washington, anything east of the Cascades, all of Idaho, and then western Montana, and also Alaska is included on there. Just one church up in Alaska now, but I, I count the whole state. And so I can say I have the biggest territory. And that also, like, I, I've always uh, maintained that if we ever get a church in Hawaii, that I should be the district representative. And our guy in California says, well, no, I should be because I'm closest. And I always have to remind him, no, 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 you, you don't know your geography. The closest state to Hawaii is Alaska. And so it seems like a full, foolproof uh, plan to me, but... As you've probably figured out, I, I've spent uh, most of my life at this part in the previous century, and uh, it's been almost 30 years now since, since I went to Bible school at Multnomah in 1990. And, and I was, I'm getting to that the point where I'm more, more reflective and, and looking back, and I think if I could go back to my days in Bible school and me and my classmates, what is one, one lesson that I wish I would have had a better grasp on and a better understanding. We all have expectations, and expectations aren't bad. Uh, we can't help it, and it's good to have expectations. I, I had one guy once I was sharing this with, uh, and I shared it at our church, and, and afterwards we had a, a small group get together, and he's, he's one of these guys that I, I think just likes to be contrary. But he says, well, I don't have expectations of anybody. And of course, my thought was, well, let's see, you're a school teacher, and I bet you have expectations of your students to 
show up to class, to uh, do their homework, to do their own answering on their test. And so we, we have expectations, and, and expectations uh, are, aren't bad. Um, probably for most of us, our expectations tend to be positive. We, we expect good things to happen. Now there are those gloomy gusses and Eeyores around that always expect the worst. Oh, it's probably going to rain today, or I'm probably going to fail the test, or, you know, things like that. But for the most part, we have positive expectations. We have expectations for all areas of our life. Uh, we have expectations of marriage. Now, many of you are probably in the place where you're expecting to get married someday. And I suspect it may be similar here. When, when I went to Multnomah, there was a, a well-known expectation for many to get their MRS degree, ring by spring, or your money back. And, and so many went to school, and, and that's a great place to expect to find your spouse. My, my own brother did. That's where he met his wife, was at Multnomah. And so... That's not a bad expectation. And for those of us that are married, we have expectations. We, we expect uh, to, to uh, love one another, to, to be faithful until death do us part, and for that to be 60 or 70 years down, down the road. And so we have e expectations. Uh, we have expectations of parenthood. As children, we have expectations of our parents, what parents should be like and what they should do. Uh, for many of you will, are probably part of your expectations for life. Yeah, I'd like to get married. I'd, I'd like to have some kids. I, I'd like to have a family. For those of us that do have kids, we have expectations of our, our kids and, and how that's going to work out. Again, not, not bad things, good things, good expectations to have that we all have. Uh, our workplace, we have expectations there. We have expectations of our health. If I, I eat well, if I do the, the right things, exercise, then hopefully I'll, I'll live a, a long, healthy life. Uh, we have expectations of the church, and we have expectations of ministry. And for those of us that, that have gone into pastoral ministry, we go into that with expectations that I'm going to go in there and, and that church is going to respond. How can they help but respond to my powerful preaching and, and my, my loving presence among them? And so we have expectations. Or you go to a camp ministry for the summer. You have expectations that all oh, the, the kids are, are going to, to cooperate. They're going to listen. They're going to respond. Their, their lives are going to be changed through our, our time of ministry. I remember one of my first experiences was when I was a young man working as a, a mechanic. I, I had one week off of, of work during the summer, and I didn't know any better, so I agreed to take my one week of vacation to be a junior high a, counsel a counselor at junior high camp. And actually, it was one of the greatest uh, weeks of my life. But uh, ultimately, we have expectations of God. Because he's the one that is really being held responsible to bring all the rest about. To bring about our expectations for marriage and family and work and ministry and all these things. And, and, and we have expectations. Many and most of these expectations are, are good. They're valid. They're fair. They're reasonable. They're achievable expectations. We, we have good expectations. We must admit some of them are maybe unrealistic, naive, careless, selfish, unachievable, and sometimes that, uh, that is the case. Sometimes our expectations are, are met. Sometimes our expectations are exceeded. 
We, we expect, uh, uh, we're, we're planning a ministry event, we're planning an activity for, for kids at our church. Uh, we're hoping to get, oh, 20 kids to come and 40 come. Wow, that was better than I ever thought it was going to be. But sometimes our expectations are, are not met. And the level and intensity of our response is going to be proportional to the, the level of our expectations or the depth of those expectations. Here a while back, we were going to go visit our church up in Alaska, and it's about 50 miles from Fairbanks. And so we flew into Fairbanks, and we got there late at night, so we were going to spend the night in a, a motel. So we went to the motel, and, and as many motels do, they provided breakfast in the morning. So we got up, went to the free breakfast, and part of the breakfast was this big pot of, of oatmeal. I actually like oatmeal, so... I think I'll have a bowl of oatmeal this morning. So I, I spooned out my oatmeal, I filled it up with the raisins and the almonds and the brown sugar, mixed it all up, went and sat down and tried it, and it was cold. Kind of not really what I expected. I went ahead and ate my cold oatmeal anyway, and to this day I don't know why I didn't take it over to the microwave and warm it up, but I didn't. But okay, expectations not met, but it didn't really ruin my day. It was, yeah, yeah one star off of my Expedia review. We may have different levels of expectations of our favorite sports team, depending on the level of your fanaticism of that team. Now, I'm not a, not a diehard fan. I, I live in Spokane, and so I, I like to watch the Gonzaga Bulldogs play basketball. But if they were to lose a game, which doesn't happen very often, eh, uh, tough luck. Um, you know, our Seattle Seahawks, not, a, not a, a, a big deal, but there are people that their day's ruined, their week is ruined if their favorite sports team uh, loses. Of course, beyond things like oatmeal and sports, our level of expectation of our, our marriage is quite different. We expect our spouse to be faithful. We expect to stay together till death do us part. And then maybe they get sick and pass away, or, or maybe other things happen and, and they're, they're not faithful. That response is certainly a lot deeper than the response to a cold bowl of oatmeal. Or as parents, we're, we're going to be good Christian parents, and so we, we do all the things that good Christian parents are supposed to do, and so, so we, we pray with our children every night, we uh, only read them Bible stories, they only watch Christian-approved videos, and, and, and we do all the things that good Christian parents are supposed to do in the hopes that they'll, they'll grow up to be devoted followers of Christ, and yet they turn into teenagers that lose their minds and make bad choices and end up addicted to drugs like everyone else. It's amazing as we get our, our pastors together, how many of them are struggling with, with children that have made choices like that. And so sometimes those expectations aren't met. Well, when our expectations aren't met, it's a, a good time to stop and to evaluate that we, we are given emotional indicators that are part of God's gift, part of the way God has wired us to let us know when something's wrong. Sometimes we're feeling discouragement, we're feeling frustrated, we're feeling sad, we're, we're disappointed, we're, we're experiencing grief. And, and those are good times to stop and ask, well, why am I feeling this way? 
As a pastor, if I'm feeling discouraged and disappointed, I need to stop and ask, well, why? Because that usually is tied into some way and somewhere having some expectations that haven't been met by my congregation, by God needs to really change these people and he's not changing them. And so we, we often experience the, these indicators that help us to reflect and evaluate and assess why, why is this happening? What's going on? And so I need to ask myself, did I have a false or misdirected understanding or expectations? One of our missionaries that I knew a number of years ago, uh, when we were serving in Northern California, he had been a, a child evangelism fellowship uh, director for the area. Uh, he felt God was, was changing direction in their ministry. He became a village missionary, and he got placed on his first field in South Dakota. And so this... Uh, gentleman from Northern California went to South Dakota, and so I'm the pastor now. And part of my job is to equip the church, to, build, to disciple the men, to, to build them up. And all the good churches, one of the first things they do is they, they have a men's breakfast. Because men like breakfast, and so we, we have a breakfast, they come together, and I, and I can disciple these men and make stronger leaders out of them. And, and all of the churches I, he, he knew would start new ministries in the fall. So in the fall, he said, Saturday morning, we're having a men's breakfast. Be there at 8 o'clock, and, and we're going to have breakfast. We're going to have Bible study. We're going to pray together. This is going to be great. Well, Saturday morning came, and, and he gets there early. He makes pancakes. He, he makes uh, eggs and bacon. He's all ready to go. Nobody shows up. Well, these guys in this church, they're not committed to Christ. They're not committed to the church. They don't want to grow. No, that wasn't it at all. He had moved to a community of farmers. And during that time of the year, it's harvest season. And farmers don't have time to go to a breakfast on Saturday morning at 8 o'clock. They have to be out in the field before the sun. And so he had a misdirected expectation and understanding of what, what their lives were like and what their priorities were. Uh, sometimes we need to ask, is there something I did wrong or could have done differently? You're, you finally build up the courage to ask that special someone out for dinner on Valentine's night. You go out to dinner, and while you're there, guys, don't be so boneheaded that you're sitting there on your phone checking, oh, Hey, my, sport, my basketball team won. And then you get back, and she says, well, thanks. And she says, hey, would you like to do it again next weekend? She says, I'll get back to you on that. What went wrong? I thought this was going to be the start of something great. Well, maybe it's time to reflect that you could have done something a little bit different. But that could, could have to do with um, planning ministry events and things like that. Or were there factors that were outside my control? Did you plan a, a camp ministry and it's the rainiest summer that that area has seen for the last 62 years and you don't have as many kids come? You uh, plan an event and it turns out that it's the same weekend as the state basketball tournament. You plan something and somebody just decides not to come. Uh, sometimes when you, it involves other people, 
they might make a decision other than you would want them or think that they should make. And also we need to ask, is God teaching me or working in me in a way that goes beyond my ministry? Oftentimes our focus is so much on what we're doing for others, what we're doing for God. I'm, I'm here to serve God. I'm, I'm going to, to, to do these things in ministry. And, and these people, aren't they lucky to have me here to, to lead this, this ministry, to, to lead this activity? And, and things don't go that way. Well, those people... And yet maybe I need to ask, maybe there's something here that God wants to teach me or some, something that God is doing, uh, working in my life. And so I want to take a little bit of time today and look at some lessons from, from the book of Job. It's probably one of those books of the Bible I've grown to appreciate more in recent years. And, and especially in my role as a district representative, uh, I spend, it seems like, way too much time dealing with missionaries, dealing with pastors that are hurting. That are hurting because of something going on in their, their church. Uh, because there's been conflict going on and the church asks them to leave or something that's going on in their family, dealing with a, a child that's, that's rebellious, or uh, dealing with health issues that don't seem to go away. And so I want to share just kind of a survey, four key passages to me, key lessons that we can learn from the book of Job. One of the first lessons we need to learn, or one of the first questions we need to answer, is God alone enough? Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. He said, Naked I came from my, others, my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now again, you, you know the story. Things were going well for Job. The life was good, and yet one day, all of a sudden, uh, the Sabaeans come in, and his oxen, his donkeys, and a big bunch of his servants wiped out and gone. No sooner does he hear that news than he he that he hears that a fire had come and all of his sheep and uh, more of his servants were gone. Then he finds out about the Chaldeans coming and his cam camels and, and even more of the servants are, are gone. And, and then to top it all off, a great wind comes and, and destroys, kills all of his children. And yet, following that, we're told that Job worships. Sometimes we experience loss in life. Sometimes we experience a disappointment and frustration and trials. Uh, to help us to ask ourselves that question, is God alone enough? Is my hope, my security, is my sufficiency and joy in God himself or in what God gives me? Sometimes we may say, well, yeah, all I need is God but I sure like it when he gives me the good health, when he gives me the, the relationships, when he gives me the, the fruitfulness in my ministry, when he gives me uh, various things. But sometimes we're forced to ask that question, is my hope, security, sufficiency, and joy in God himself or in what God gives me? Will I worship God for nothing because he is inherently worthy or only if I get something out of it? Now, there are those that will tell you that you should worship God because it's worth it, because it's profitable, because God will bless you, God will give you all of the stuff. But that's not always what happens. 
So sometimes we, we need to ask ourselves, will I worship God because He is worthy? Because He is Creator and Lord of the universe, and He is, is worthy of our worship no matter what. Even if my health isn't restored, even if I'm still a, a poor, struggling, starving student, uh, hoping that Mark will take me for, to lunch this afternoon. Um, but it, will we worship God for Himself? Will I trust, obey, and serve God regardless of the outcome as I see it? See, we like to formulate, this is how I would like to see this ministry to go. This is how I would like to see my life to go, my, my, my marriage, my, my family, my career. And if that happens, great. We're happy. God is good. But will we also say God is good if things don't happen according to our desired outcome? So sometimes we're forced to ask that question, is God alone enough? Also, we need to sometimes ask that question, how important is this in light of eternity? As you heard earlier, midway through all of Job's struggles, his questions, his, his wrestling with what's going on, he, he, he makes this profound statement. But as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and he will stand upon the earth at last. And after my body has decayed, yet in my body I will see God. Or as another translation puts it, I will see him for myself. Yes, I will see him with my own eyes. I am overwhelmed at the thought. Now, I understand there's some debate and discussion over exactly what Job would have understood at his point in history. And, and I've come to the conclusion that he had some understanding of resurrection and some understanding of, of life beyond this world. Uh, part of my conclusion is if he was somewhere in the patriarchal period, uh, Hebrews 11 told us that Abraham was willing to sacrifice I Isaac for the hope of the resurrection. And so uh, Abraham said, had some concept of resurrection. And so I'm, I'm assuming and concluding that Job had some con concept, some understanding of that also at the time. Back when I was working as a mechanic, I worked next to, next to this guy named Lee, and, and Lee was a Vietnam veteran, uh, ex-Green Beret. Lee was the toughest guy I have ever known in my life. Lee was the kind of guy that if he got a cut, he'd pull out a needle and some fishing line and would sew himself back up. Lee was the kind of guy that he had a toothache, so he got some pliers and pulled his own tooth out. Says, yeah, but that one put a sweat on me. Uh, Lee was a tough guy, but he had, because of some of his life experience, he had a, a, a neat perspective on life at times. And, and, and within that context, we were often talking about somebody would bring a car in to get it fixed, and, and maybe uh, we didn't get to it, maybe the part wasn't available, and people would get upset. The customer would be upset, the service manager would be upset, and, and Lee's response was usually, well, you know, 100 years from now, what difference will it make if your car got, got your car back today or tomorrow or the next day? And so I kind of took that statement in perspective and kind of built on it and seeing in some other ways of when we face various things in life, what difference is this going to make 100 years from now, whether or not my oatmeal was cold? Well, 100 years from now, a guy your age isn't going to be around anymore. Exactly. None of us will be. And so, so, how, so whether or not... Three kids or 30 kids show up to your vacation Bible school, what difference is it going to make 100 years from now? And so sometimes we just need to step back and gain perspective.
Sometimes we need to stop and ask, what, is, what do I understand and what do I truly believe about the sovereignty and providence of God and, and, and how he's working in, in this and how oftentimes he's working in process in, in my life and in the lives of others. Those kids at camp that I'm, I'm hoping would make some sort of profession of faith, some sort of decision for Christ, and they didn't seem to pay attention at all all week. Well, maybe this is just part of a process that God is working on in their lives. And so similar to that, who produces the fruit? You know, Paul says, you know, we, we've each got a, a part in the process, a part of the, the job. Some plant, some water, some cultivate, and, and, and some harvest. But, but it's all ultimately up to God. And, and so as, as we're facing disappointments, discouragements, struggles in life, unmet expectations. Sometimes we just need to, to stop back and take an eternal perspective on it. Of course, we need to note that an eternal perspective does not deny, ignore, or minimize the pain, suffering, and loss that we face. Uh, sometimes well-meaning Christians would say, well, you, you shouldn't feel bad about that. Uh, don't cry over spilt milk or, or whatever it might be. But what we, we need to recognize and, and in a sense even embrace sometimes the, the real pain, especially some of the, the deeper unmet, unmet expectations in our, our marriages in our, and in our family. You know, Job wasn't all smiles and grins throughout his, his whole account. Uh, much of the book of, of Job is, is poems of lament. Job crying out to God and sharing his hurt, sharing his frustration. God, I don't understand. God, I don't get it. What's going on? Uh, the book of Lamentations is, is a, a crying out as, as Jeremiah sees his, his world crumbling around him and says, ah, this hurts more than I could ever imagine that it would hurt. Look what's happening. Uh, by some accounts, at least 60 of the psalms are psalms of lament, either personal laments or corporate laments, people crying out to God in their pain and said, this is not the way that it ought to be. And oftentimes we need to remind ourselves that unmet expectations are a reminder that we live in a world that's not as it ought to be. That we're in a world that's still under the curse and the penalty and the precariousness of, of the fall. And so it's not the way it ought to be. And, and I sometimes like to share with people that God gives us the gift of grief. Grief is that set of thoughts and emotions that, that tell us that something's wrong here. We experience grief when we experience loss. And whether it's a loss of a job or the loss of a friendship or a relationship or the death of a loved one, something in that tells us this isn't right. There's something in this that isn't as it ought to be. And, and there are those that would tell us that, well, that's just a projection of your wishful thinking. That's not how it is. But there's others that would remind us, ah, no, that's a reflection. That's a re reflection of the way it really is and the way it ought to be, that, that God had designed our, our existence in, in His creation to, to be a, a life of, of wholeness and, and peace, a life of shalom, of, of experience that wellness and completeness and well-being. And so when, when that's broken, when that's disrupted and distorted, something tells us, this isn't right. This isn't how it ought to be. And yet that's a reminder that we're looking to and clinging to a world that is beyond this one that's not the way that it ought to be. Um, I, I like to share some quotes because there's people that are a lot better with putting thoughts together than I am. And so, hey, I'm going to borrow from them. Uh, one author says, hope arises out of the hard truth of how things are. Christians will always live carrying in one hand the promise of how it will be, 
and in the other, the hard reality of how it is. To deny either is to hold only half the truth of the gospel. But our dual burden drives us a little crazy. We long for simplistic reassurances. We want to know we have found a gospel that will vanquish the hard realities. To live with a promise and its contradictions is the most heroic challenge of the Christian faith. Third lesson we can learn, besides is God alone enough and how do we see this in light of eternity? How does this help me to grow in wisdom? Job 28, 28, Job says, or it's written, And to man he said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. Of course, Job is part of, of what is classified as wisdom literature in the Bible, along with uh, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. And, and I like to define wisdom as skill in the art of godly living. Now, if your Old Testament professor has a different definition for wisdom, use his, def, de, his, use his definition on the test, not mine. Don't put down my definition says, well, that guy at chapel says wisdom is skill in the art of godly living. But, but I like this definition because uh, wisdom, it's not an exact science. It's not a flow chart. It's not uh, following five easy steps to, to carefree living. It's a skill that we develop with understanding and knowledge and experience in, in how to live well, in how to live a godly life, how to live well in relationship to God, creation, and, and others. And, and that's what true wisdom is. A wisdom is living in faithful dependence on God and on the sufficiency of His grace. Uh, to share another quote, and I don't know, that's probably bigger on the front screen than it is on the back one. But to be truly wise is not to be able to perceive the divinely instituted order that permeates creation, nor is understanding to gain mastery over life as Job's friends have suggested all along. Instead, true wisdom is fear of the Lord. Of course, this does not mean that we are to be afraid of God, but rather that we realize and live according to the recognition that we are entirely dependent on God and His mercy in all things. Fear of God is an admission of human powerlessness and submission to the power of God. And emphasis added here, true wisdom then is not to gain mastery over life, but to acknowledge dependence on God. See, many think and many will misunderstand Proverbs, for example, to think, ah, this is how I can keep life on, under control. This is how I can direct my life along a certain path. But wisdom is ultimately about acknowledging that we are dependent upon God for all things. Uh, to quote another author, to fear God is to take God seriously, to acknowledge Him in our lives as the highest good, to revere Him, to honor and worship Him, to center our lives on Him. And that's what true, true wisdom is. That's why the, the fear of God is, is the beginning of wisdom. A fourth lesson we can learn, how does this help me to truly know and experience God more? Again, Job says, as he's coming to a conclusion of, of this account, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. Or to, to share another translation, I have only heard about you before, but now I have seen you with my own eyes. I take back everything I said and sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. Again, to share another quote, Job does not receive answers or understanding in this encounter, but rather God himself. Despite the suffering and mystery, the powerless inability to control oneself or one's world, God is still worth holding on to in a relationship of absolute dependence, which is the fear of God. 
This new experience of God, overwhelming as it is, is enough. Job is willing to lose everything, to suffer and to die, even without any hope of justification, but he is not willing to give up on the God who has come to him in power and grace. Or one other quote, thus the dialogue ends with Job in the same physical location as at the beginning, but with a far deeper knowledge and experience of God. So early on, we have, have Job sitting in dust and ashes, and Job says again, here I am in, 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 the, in the dust and ashes. I'm still sitting here in the dust and ashes. So at this point of the story, nothing had changed with his circumstances, but everything had changed with his perspective and outlook. He says, ah, through this all, I've come to see God in a way that I'd never seen him before, and that's enough. Our circumstances may not change, but we can gain a deeper relationship with God that changes our perspective and our experience of those circumstances. And so maybe you're going through a tough time in a relationship with, with parents or, or with children or at work, and sometimes those, those circumstances might not change, but our perspectives uh, can. To follow Jesus is to enter the lifelong process of discovering more about God than we know, discovering that my ways are not your ways, discovering that we have been worshiping not God, but an expectation of God. Nothing makes it harder to see God than our expectations of Him. They blind us to the new ways He is at work, saving our lives. Conversion pulls us away from being religious, away from having all the answers. It turns us into pilgrims who journey through life with some hard questions. For God is always... Here we go. God is always working just beyond our limits, inviting us to venture into the unknown where we are abandoned by everything, especially by our prior expectations of God. Which brings us back to that first point, is God alone enough? If, if, if life brings us to that point where we're all we have is Christ and our relationship with Him, is that sufficient? And will we still fall down and worship? We're called to walk by faith and not by sight. And too often we want to live according to the appearances and, and the things that we can see and the results and, and those experiences. But we're called to walk by faith, to trust in Him. We don't deny, ignore, or minimize the hurt, frustration, and grief of unmet expectations in life, but rather in and through them, we come to see God in the sufficiency of His grace more clearly and more deeply. And ultimately, that's what life is about. God working things out so that we come to that place of dependence on Him and trust in Him and seeing that His grace is sufficient for whatever He calls us to. And so we're told, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Uh, many years later, Paul would write, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, just as I also have been fully known. That concept that now we, we get a glimpse of, of who God is. We get a glimpse of, of His glory, that, that manifestation of, of the excellence of, of His character and, and His attributes. And, and, and we get a glimpse of that now. And yet part of, of our hope is, is that one day we're going to see that in all of its fullness. A little bit later, after Paul even, it's written... And there shall no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his bondservants shall serve him. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. And there shall no longer 
be any night, and they shall not have the need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God shall illumine them, and they shall reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are faithful and true. Let's pray together. Our Father, we, we thank you for, for the abundance of your goodness, for the sufficiency of your grace, and, and for so many blessings you give us. And, and Father, we, we, have, we have expectations of life and of each other and of ourselves and, and of, of this world. And ultimately, we have expectations of you. And, and over and over again, you meet and exceed those expectations. And yet sometimes, and seems like more so for some than others, those expectations aren't met. And we face the, the frustration, the discouragement, the, the sadness, uh, the, the grief and the pain sometimes of life not going how we think it ought to. And yet we know that you have a purpose and a plan even in and through those experiences. That you want us to see that, that you are enough and your grace is sufficient. You want us to sometimes see beyond uh, this life and this world to eternity and ultimately what you're doing in us and for us. You want us to, to, to grow in wisdom and, and better understand our, our place in this world and how to navigate us. And more than anything, you want us to have a closer and a deeper relationship with you, that, that we might see you, that we might see you and sometimes reflections and shadows now, but with that, that hope, that certainty, that promise that one day we will see you face to face and, and, and everything will, will fall into place as we'll finally experience that existence of the way that things ought to be, the way you planned and designed them. And so we thank you for that. Father, I pray for these students. I, I have no idea where each of them are. Some of them are, are going through times of, of joy and flourishing and, and blessing, and we thank you for that. But Father, anytime there's a group of people gathered together, there are some that are facing the, the frustrations, the discouragement, uh, the grief of expectations, of goals, of desires, of hopes that aren't being met. And I pray for, for each one that they would find that your grace is sufficient and your power is perfected in their weakness, that they will see you more deeply and, and closely and personally than, than ever before as they experience your sufficiency and your goodness. Father, we thank you for that. We thank you we have that promise and that hope of whatever this life holds, we look to the life to come, you know, and we look to uh, eternity with you and in, in your presence and, and that fullness of joy that, that awaits us. And so we thank you for that. We praise you. We, we worship you for, for that promise and for who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.